invite you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. We'll start with verse 1, read through verse 9, and let us listen to the word of the Lord. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now Peter said to Jesus, Well, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. We are starting a new um, sermon series today. And it's on being a disciple. How can you um, grow as a disciple? One of the phrases that I've been taught, which I think is an accurate phrase, is no one drifts into discipleship. No one accidentally grows as a disciple. You have to put your mind to it. You have to think about what does a mature disciple look like. And... How can I become like that? And so in our message today and over the next six weeks, I'm hoping to give you a vision for what a mature disciple looks like. And then um, hopefully, as God's people, we will have this this desire, this intent to to grow um, into mature disciples. And then we'll take some next steps um, to, to do just that. So we're looking at this amazing story of Jesus and three of his disciples, and what can we learn from this about discipleship? Well, let me give you a statement that, and here it is, uh, about what this story says about Jesus and discipleship. And it's this, Jesus is the divine Son of God and has authority, so listen to him. I think that's a really important statement, and I'll tell you why. Because for many people, I believe, including myself, uh, we often think like this. I'm going to, because we don't really like authority, I'm going to trivialize someone's authority or I'm going to scrutinize someone's authority so I won't have have to listen to you. Let me give you an example of... um, one of those not-so-finer moments, and it's my not-so-finer moment. When I was a pastor in our town of 10,000 in Illinois, we lived next to the city library. And I mean, we lived right next to the library. Like, there was a narrow alleyway, not even a full street, but a narrow alleyway that separated my house from the city library. So I went over there often 
to write my sermons, and it was great. Except for one restriction that was posted several places in the library. Can you imagine, Can you just think of what this restriction, what you would see posted several places in the library would be? No food or drink in the library. Seems reasonable, right? Nice interior, lots of books. Let's keep it clean. You know, here's the deal with authority. It seems reasonable until it doesn't. Um, and then we, became, we begin to trivialize and scrutinize authority. Now, the library staff on a whole, they weren't very friendly. And when you get hungry, it's easy to think, listen, there's no way I'm going to make a mess. I mean, I'm a careful individual. So I started coming in with my own snacks. I'd have granola bars. I'd sit along the edges of the library, the walls, the exterior walls, facing an outside window. I'd take up my granola bar, and I'd open it up really, really quietly, defiantly ignore the new food or drink signs. Um, this, by the way, happened on a number of occasions until finally I was caught opening up a bottle of Diet Coke by one of the, uh, the librarians. Um, so I, I was trivializing and I was scrutinizing their authority so I wouldn't have to listen to the librarians. I started to think, what's the big deal anyway? I trivialized it. What? Come on, this is a granola bar. And this is just another rule that they have that gets in a way in our way of reasonable living. So I trivialized their authority, and then I scrutinized it. What? I don't need to pay attention to this. I'm not going to make a mess. They're not, they're not very friendly anyway. Why do I have to? Why, why do I have to see them as authority figures? Why should this rule apply to me? Now, on scrutinizing authority, I do recognize that, um, in one way, it can be good, inappropriate. I mean, history is. Um, History contains no few examples of authority figures gone wrong where their authority didn't need to be scrutinized and even um, challenged, corrected because it was, it was wrong or even just evil. But I want us to think about these disciples, Peter, James, and John, and their experience of Jesus as an authority figure in the story. Because as I read it, this was a decisive, affirming, confirming moment about the authority of Jesus. I think for them, following Jesus was about to start getting rough. Jesus was becoming unpopular with the religious leaders of their day. He was being threatened. And being a follower of Jesus would soon become risky work. And I believe God wanted to provide them with this clear moment. Jesus is the Messiah. So how do we see that in the story? Well, first, we see that Moses and Elijah are there. Why them? Why did Moses and Elijah appear? Why not Abraham and Isaiah? Well, Moses was um, the, um, I mean, he was the representative figure regarding the law of God. He himself climbed up a mountain. Jesus and the disciples climbed up a mountain. Moses climbed up a mountain, received the Ten Commandments from the Lord to then give to the Israelite people. Elijah, he was the signature prophetic voice calling the Jewish people back to the true religion of God 
and to turn away from, from idols. And he too climbed up a high mountain, received a religious re- revelation there after he confronted false prophets, false gods uh, that the Israelites were worshiping. So we have these two figurehead representatives from the Old Testament people of the Israelites, Moses and Elijah. Jesus is being exalted above Moses and Elijah. The totality of the law and the prophets all point to Jesus and are fulfilled in him. So we have Moses and Elijah there. Then there's the transfiguration itself. Jesus becomes dazzling bright. Like you can't look at his face anymore because it's like looking up in the sun. You can't do it. It's how bright he was shining. And then third, there's his voice from heaven. And God doesn't say, hey, on your knees, there's Moses and Elijah here. That's not what God says. God says, this is my son, in verse 5, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So all the spotlight is put on Jesus in this story. Now let me make three points about Jesus' authority and what it means for following him. One, Jesus' authority is established because of who he is and not what he says. Uh, you might be thinking, hmm, I don't know if I buy that. Let me, let me talk about that for a second. We often say that we like what this person says, what this other person says, and therefore we will see him or her as an authority figure. And that just isn't the way with Christ. I mean, it's true that some people come to faith because they like what Jesus says. They like his teachings on showing love and responding with peace. Some people say, well, he seems like a really good teacher, and they start their journey of faith there. I agree. I like what he says. Therefore, I will follow him. But what also happens is people can listen to Christ. They can like what he says for a while. And then realize either that they no longer like what he says or that he is asking for too much from them. And then they turn away from Jesus. Jesus has authority because of who he is and not because of what he says. Or people could be like um, Aldous Huxley, big British author, writer, philosopher, from the early to mid-20th century, and he was an atheist. One of his chief points is that a world without God is a world without meaning, and he did not want to see any meaning in the world. And I want to read what he writes about this. Um, This is what he writes. I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. So he assumed the world didn't have meaning. He's like, ooh, this is, I like this. I like where this is going. See, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he should not personally do whatever he wants to do or why his friends should not seize political power and govern 
in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. So in other words, this is what he's saying. If there is no God, then you get to make up your own rules. That is what he is saying. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essential. It was essentially an instrument of liberation by finding no meaning in the world, by choosing to see the world through that lens, he was liberated sexually and politically. That's what he wrote. So let me tell you what he was saying. Sorry for the so many words on one screen, but I wanted to give you that quote. And let me tell you what he's saying. The reason he rejected God wasn't because he could not imagine how God could exist. He could perfectly well imagine that God could exist but he rejected a higher authority over him. He knew if God was real, then he had to listen to him. Listen, if God is real, you have to listen to God. He couldn't just do whatever Aldous Huxley wanted to do. If there was God, then the world had meaning, and as a philosopher, he would have to align himself with the meaning that God the creator of the world, gave the world, and and not inject his own meaning or his own rules into the world. Because of who Jesus is, he has authority no matter what he says. That's, That's the key thing. And we have to get our minds around that. Because of who Jesus is, he's God. He has authority no matter what he says. In other words, we cannot trivialize his authority. We can't say, oh, this is important, this is important, this is important. But this, what Jesus says up here, is not that important. I don't have to really pay attention to it. We can't trivialize his authority. Um, If Jesus were to say, love your neighbor as yourself, and you got to wear green on Sunday, guess what? We'd have to wear green on Sunday because of who Jesus is. He's God's son in the divine trinity. Second point, uh, Jesus' authority means we have to listen to him about all of life. So notice what God says next in, in verse 5. I just, you got your Bible in front of you. You can look at verse 5. Um, the voice from heaven, God says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then what does God say? Does God, God doesn't say, now worship him. Although that would be a perfectly appropriate thing for God to say at that moment. This is my son, now bow down and worship him. Honor him, live your life for him. God could have said any of those things, and we would say, yeah, that's what you need to say. But what does God say? This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Now, what? Listen to him. Oh, what does this mean? It means the supremacy of Jesus means the authority of Jesus. It means we must listen to him because he is correct, because he is wise. Let's talk about being a disciple of Jesus. Do you know that the word uh, for disciple, the the Greek word that was used um, in Jesus' day was the word mathetes. And at its root, it means to learn. Mathetes. That word has the same root as our word mathematics. That's like one for the engineers right there, right? Um, uh, to think, to, to learn. That's at the heart of being a disciple of Jesus. 
So in Jesus' day, disciples were individuals who learned from a particular rabbi or a teacher. And that didn't mean, hey, we'll meet up at the local coffee shop once a week and talk for an hour about things. That meant you spent every day with your disciple. You followed your disciple. When Jesus went up to Matthew, James, John, Peter, and said, follow me, um, he wasn't saying, uh, figuratively follow me, uh, follow me in your hearts or follow me spiritually. He really meant follow me around because that's what disciples would do with their rabbi. They would follow their rabbi around. They would spend many, many, many moments of their days, every day of the week, with their rabbi, learning about life, learning what the rabbi taught about life. So in Jesus' day, being a disciple meant you literally followed your rabbi. You learned what to believe about God from your rabbi. You learned what to believe about life from your rabbi. You had a mentor of all aspects of life. And so think about, this helps us make sense of just story after story in the Gospels about Jesus leading his disciples to everyday life experiences, like going to the wedding at at, at Cana. And he just wanted them to follow along and learn how to live life as a person of faith. He showed his disciples God's will for human relationships. How do you treat others who are different from yourselves? Jesus showed his disciples that. How do you treat women? Jesus showed his disciples that in a culture that um, had a relatively lower value of women. How should you treat someone that you are at odds with? Jesus showed them about that. What happens if someone wrongs you? He gave lessons on leadership and, and having influence. He's taught about, Jesus taught him about being a good citizen and paying taxes. Largely, Jesus talked about important, weighty issues of the heart. He talked about motivations and aspirations. What, what fuels you? What gets you excited as a person? He talked about what to do in crisis situations. He talked a lot about money, what to do with it, and the dangers of loving it. This is what Jesus just leading his disciples every day and revealing what to think about these things. So here's an exercise. You can do this on your note sheet in your sermon. You can think about it in your mind. I want you to list out the top things that take up your emotional energy each week or every day. Just just a little exercise. What do I worry about or think about every day? What is going on in my mind and my heart. It's, you know, it, it, it's, it's probably not what you're going to eat for lunch. It's probably something deeper than that. Relationships. Trying to mend a broken relationship. Maybe that's what you would write down. Security for the future. I feel insecure. I feel like I need to prepare for the future. Security for the future. Happiness, I think happiness, life purpose. I feel like, you know, I want to be doing what God wants me to do that would fulfill some purpose in me. Is that what you write down? What you're worried about thinking about? You see, Jesus, here's the point of this exercise, to recognize that Jesus taught about all of these different things. If people were fully aware of what Jesus taught, nobody would honestly say, oh, Jesus is just irrelevant today. 
So here's a few things we see about learning from Jesus. One, we said that Jesus' teachings are complete. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you listen to him about everything, about how to be a faithful friend, how to be a faithful husband or, or wife, how to be a faithful parent or a child or employee or neighbor. At the very end of 2004, um, Melissa, myself, my two kids at the time, Susan and Luke, we moved into a new house just five days before Christmas. We were so excited. And I kid you not, the first thing that happened when we walked through the door of our house for the very first time, our door, our house, the very first thing that happened is Susan and Luke. I don't know why they did this. Susan and Luke is two. Susan's four. Susan and Luke, they ran upstairs, and they pressed the lock on all three upstairs bedroom doors, and they slammed the door shut from the hallway. We were locked out of our bedrooms. I, I kid you not, that's what happened. We were locked out of our bedrooms. And you've heard the analogy before that following Jesus is an invitation. It's, it's inviting him into all of the rooms of your home, kind of the, you know, all of the areas of your life, that metaphor. You've heard that before. Inviting Jesus into every square foot of our life, every part of us. And it's so easy to just run in and start locking doors and closing them and say, Jesus, you know, I can't go in there, I can't go in there, I can't go in there. I can't touch this part of my life. Uh, this is my private part of my life. Can't, can't tell me what to do there. Stay out of this room. It's so easy to do that. A real disciple is one who keeps all of the doors of one's life open for Jesus to come in and have his way. Two, Jesus' teachings are essential. Jesus does not bother too much with the frivolous. Um, I like to say that the Bible tells us who God is, who we are, and how we are supposed to live. And I think we can think about Jesus doing the very same thing. Jesus tells us who God is, who we are, and how we are supposed to live. Essential teachings. So being a disciple today means listening to and learning from Jesus as broadly as you can. I mean, you have the master here. You have the, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he gives to us his word. And taking advantage of that and learning broadly from Jesus as much as we can. It means looking through the gospels and seeing the lessons that Jesus gives and the patterns of life that he models. It means not missing out on lessons because they are vital and recognizing where we need to grow. So one thing I'd I'd like to ask you to do is to think about your growth as a disciple to Jesus. One, do you seek to listen to him? Do you like, yeah, I I recognize that I want to know what you say, Jesus. And then do you seek to order your life around those teachings? And to do that, you have to actually know what Jesus teaches. So I want to share with you this morning. It's in your note sheet. I want to share with you something that you might find at first to be an oversimplification. Um, but what I've done is I, I've, I've read through all the four Gospels. Um, I've done this, I mean, this is something I started a decade ago. This is not something I did just this week. 
um, read through all the four Gospels and see all of the broad and important truths that Jesus teaches about who God is, who we are, and how we're supposed to live, those three things. And just list them out. And then, and then try to um, summarize them in a way that is helpful for us. So what I've done is I've, I've kind of summarized them into nine different core teachings of Jesus. And this is where you might think, well, that sounds like an oversimplification. Nine things that Jesus says, well, they're, they're pretty broad. These nine things that Jesus teaches about who God is, who, God is, who we are, and how we are supposed to live, they, they move us to act in certain ways. And so um, in a few Sundays, I want to share with you nine of the core actions of a disciple. And then in, do, in believing these teachings of Jesus and doing these actions of Jesus, we, we are changed from the inside out. And so we'll talk about, um, finally, in the sermon series, what are the core attributes of a disciple? So the teachings of Jesus, the actions of a disciple, and then the attributes of a disciple. So here, you can look at your note sheet, fill in what you want to, but here, I want to give you the, the nine, it's a man, manageable list. You might come up with more, by the way. You might say, I think there's 10, 11, 12. That's great. I came up with nine. I mean, here they are. So, Jesus teaches about personal God. God loves me personally and upholds me powerfully. The authority of God. I trust God's authority expressed in his word. So he teaches us about who God is and who we are. We have received salvation from God. God is the saving God. We receive salvation from God. I am saved by God's grace through my faith in Christ. Jesus teaches about who we are. So our identity in God, we have our identity in God. I find my identity and worth in my status, first and foremost, as a child of God. And I am empowered by God. The Holy Spirit is God's spirit that lives in me and empowers me. And then Jesus teaches about how we are to live the love of God. So back to who God is. He's a loving God. Uh, God dearly loves his people, and love is my greatest act. Love will always be my greatest act. Living for God, my life belongs to God alone, and I live for him. Mission of God, I join in God's mission of redemption and rewarded by God. My greatest rewards are those given by God. I think Jesus broadly teaches about these things. And if we, will, if we will commit ourselves to learning as much about those things as possible and having those, building our beliefs around them, it will change what we do and it will change us from the inside out. Um, if you've been at Hope Church for a while, you may remember a resource called the Christian Life Profile. I found it on one of the bookshelves. It's something that I used in the past. Um, it was written by a guy, a pastor named Randy Frazee. And he does something very similar. What are the core beliefs, core actions, core um, attributes of a disciple? So this is a similar thing. What I've done is I've just looked at what Jesus teaches and what Jesus does in the, in the four Gospels and gleaned from that what are, some, what are some common things that we see Jesus doing. By the way, if, you are, um, if you're motivated to do so, what I've listed on the screen just of a small snapshot of these different things. I have a longer sheet. You can pick one of these up. It's on the welcome 
center outside in the foyer on the way out. Just grab one of these. It has a little more detailed description of each of these and then some scriptures from the Gospels, largely, mostly from the Gospels, that reinforce these different teachings. And so the hope is this, that um, we will look at this and notice all that Jesus teaches and then think, so where, where do I need to grow? So I thought of a, a silly little phrase to help us kind of have our marching orders today. And it's this, follow the guide, and that the capital G guide, that's Jesus. Follow the guide, know what he says, fill in the gaps. And the gaps are not what he doesn't say. The gaps are, in my life, where am I not, where am I not embracing a certain teaching of Jesus? Where am I finding myself resistant to this or thinking, oh, I don't know about that? Or, hmm, I haven't really thought about that one. I don't know if I would say that I really fully believe that. So we follow the guide, fill in the gaps. Follow the guide, be broadly aware of what Jesus teaches. And then think through what are the one or the two of these that um, may not be truly a part of your core beliefs as a Christian. And the final thing, I think this, this is, this may be the most important thing about the story. I don't know. It's all important, right? But I don't want us to miss on this last point about Jesus' authority. You look to Jesus' love to embrace Jesus' authority. Because what if you're here this morning or listening online, you're like, eh. I'm not too interested in this. I'm not too interested in really diving deep. Um, I'm, I'm not too interested in reconfiguring my whole life around the teachings of Jesus. Fair enough. Look to Jesus' love to embrace Jesus' authority. It's one thing to submit to Jesus' authority and say, well, I guess I have to do these things. Don't really want to. It's another thing to embrace Jesus' authority. So there's this curious ending of this story, or at least where we stopped reading. Verse 9. It's curious. Look at this verse. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Why not? I mean, Jesus was just transfigured, just dazzling. Why not the disciples come down and just tell everyone what just happened? Jesus, don't do that. Wait. See, Jesus knew the prevalent thought of the Jews at that time The prevalent thought of the Jews was that the glorious Messiah would come and use great force, would exert his will and destroy the Romans around them, just squash the Romans around them and rescue his people. And that was not Jesus' way. Jesus knew, if y'all go down there and talk about me dazzling bright and and me being the fulfillment of Moses and, and Elijah, everyone will solidify in their minds that the way that that the way is the way of force flexing muscle and strength to obtain privileged position as God's people. No. Now Jesus would bring freedom to his people, but through the way of sacrifice, by dying on the cross, 
Jesus says, don't say anything until the Son of Man, referring to himself, has been raised from the dead. See, Jesus laid down his life for you so that you could lay down your life for him. That's how it works. Embrace Jesus' authority by looking to Jesus' love. He laid down his life for you. He so loved you that he laid down his life for you. He took the hit so that you wouldn't. He suffered death so that you wouldn't have to die, so that you could have eternal life. That's how you embrace Jesus' authority. You look to the cross. You look to Jesus submitting to the will of his heavenly Father by going to the cross and dying for you. Look to Jesus' love. Follow the guide. Jesus your guide. Fill in the gaps. What am I not embracing of the teachings of Jesus? Where do I need to grow? Grow as a disciple. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that you, um, you're the one who died on the cross for us. And you are the maker of the heavens and the earth. And you are the smartest man who ever lived. You are the wisest being that there is. And we have a lot to learn. And you don't give us teachings, you don't give us commandments to suppress our life, but to give us freedom, to give us hope, to rescue us, to give us abundant life, to lead us out of darkness, to help us mend broken relationships, to help us um, be inspired to live gracious lives, to change us from the inside out, and we want to just submit ourselves to you over these next few weeks as we dive deep into this and look to you, our teacher, our rabbi, the one who gives us hope, the one that we serve and love. In Christ's name we pray, amen.